open to Nehemiah chapter 8. We will eventually end up in Matthew chapter 5, I promise you that, but we're starting in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone will come around make sure you have a physical copy of the Bible. And if you need a Bible and want to take that home with you, feel free to do that. We love to give those out and make sure that people have a copy of the Bible for themselves. All right, Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we are starting. We're going to read the first couple verses and then skip down. So just follow along with me as I read this. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to. To understand, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon. This sermon will not be that long, I promise you. From daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, skip down to verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I begin here for a couple of specific reasons. <clears throat> the first is this, okay? This scene comes late in the Old Testament chronologically. The people of Israel at this point in their story have been in exile, so far from home for a long season of time. Everything in their life has been disrupted. Their world got flipped, turned upside down. Two of you get that reference. And so the book of Nehemiah tells the story of how they begin to return home to their land, specifically to the city of Jerusalem, and how they begin to rebuild their home. So we begin here today for this reason. This is 2019 now, and we, Discovery, are in a season of rebuilding. We've been through, again, disruption and transition, and the last six months, I think, have been about stabilizing things, and now we're at this place of let's look to the future and let's start to rebuild some stuff. And we want to rebuild on a foundation of a healthy culture, a God-driven vision, and a kingdom mission. This is one of the reasons, the primary reason, in fact, we are spending so much time in the gospel of Matthew, so much time with Jesus. We want to discover and recover the good news of Jesus for each of us individually, for us collectively as a church, and for our broader community. So we're going to spend this time here as we rebuild and move forward. And then the other reason I wanted us to begin here this morning is this. As we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 5, there's a big connection, I think, between this scene and what Jesus is doing in this very famous text, oftentimes called the Sermon on the Mount. There's a pattern that's repeated in Israel's history that's, uh, that shows up in this scene. The pattern goes something like this. They'll have a season of success. Things are going fairly well, and they settle into a place of complacency. 
And in that complacency, the language that the Old Testament will use is that they forget God. And in this this forgetting of God, God sends people to try to get their attention, to call them back to him. He sends these prophets who will give them a message. And usually there's, there's some sort of consequence attached to that message. If you don't return, if you don't come back, this is what's going to happen to you. And most of the time, they don't pay attention and this calamity strikes. So there's complacency, there's forgetting, and then there's this exile. And then somewhere along the line, what will happen is someone discovers or recovers the scripture, God's word, God's law, as we saw again in this scene in Nehemiah 8. And it disrupts this pattern and creates a moment of awakening, remembering. And and the people turn back to God. Here in in chapter 8, they weep because they realize the gap between where they are and where they were, where they should be in relationship to God. The very next chapter, in chapter 9, they have this huge moment of confession. They confess their own sins. They confess the sins of their ancestors that led them to this place. And there's this big recommitment to live the ways of God. So all of this I want us to have in our minds as a backdrop to Matthew chapter 5. You can turn over there now. We're going to be in uh, verse 17 through all the, all the way through the end of chapter 5. And so just a real quick review. Actually, it's not going to be a quick review, so just hang with me for a moment. <laughs> we started this journey in Matthew in December with Advent. We were looking at the remarkable events around the birth of Jesus. And we saw how his birth is a culmination of Israel's story. It's the fulfillment of all these ancient promises. Matthew goes out of his way to say this happened to fulfill this thing that was promised long ago as a way to to very clearly tell us the long-awaited Savior, Messiah, this King that Israel had been hoping for and longing for is here. And yet, at the same time, this whole thing with Jesus coming to earth is surprising and even shocking. God arriving as a baby, the scandalous nature of Mary's pregnancy, the violence and the chaos that's the result of Jesus and his challenge to the powers of his day. And then when Jesus starts uh, making himself known publicly, he doesn't do it in ways that people would have expected. From his uh, growing up in Nazareth to getting baptized in the Jordan River by John to launching his ministry in Galilee, all of this is surprising. And so there's this massive tension present in Jesus' life right from the very beginning between fulfillment. This is the, the, the culmination of all of these promises and all of these things that we've been hoping and longing for. And then something new is happening. This is not what we expected. And we're going to see that tension at play again this morning. Now, just a little bit more context. Okay, last Sunday we started a new section, and Scott did a great job getting us started in this new section. By the way, what a gift to be able to be here last Sunday and just enjoy worship and to sit under Scott's teaching and just to be here and be a part of what's going on without any responsibility. That was awesome, so thank you guys for that. So we got started in this new section. Again, this, this very famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. Known, I think, both inside and outside the church. And a lot of times you think of this as being, you know, Jesus' most important teaching. But the way that Matthew structures his gospel, this is part one of five significant teachings. Five discourses, as scholars call them. 
And there's uh, some sense that what Matthew is doing here is, again, connecting with his primarily Jewish audience. They would have been familiar with Scripture as Torah, the law, the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was what they thought of as Scripture. And so with Jesus, we see five books of Torah, five discourses. Matthew wants us to see, once again, fulfillment and something new. What Jesus does in this first discourse is mimic that Old Testament pattern. There's been this exile. They have not heard from God in hundreds of years. They've been occupied by the Roman Empire. And now there's this time of remembering, both through John the Baptist and then through some of the early things that Jesus says. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is here. Remember your God. And now a time of rediscovering God's word. This is what God has said. And the pattern holds right up to the point where Jesus begins to speak. He does not stand up and start reciting the book of Exodus. He opens with a litany of blessings. This is where we were last Sunday. If you were here, you'll remember this. These blessings that, again, would have been totally unexpected to his audience. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. No. Blessed are those who are powerful in spirit, those who win. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for awesome experiences, who have 10,000 Instagram followers. So Jesus introduces us to this, what we oftentimes refer to as upside-down world of blessing, his upside-down kingdom. And it's the kingdom that Jesus has been wanting to talk about. Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus begins to preach, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. A few verses later, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. This is what Jesus wants to talk about. And so here, he gathers this large crowd to him, and he begins to cast vision for what life in his kingdom looks like for what life on earth could really actually be. Now, pause for here for just a moment. 20 years ago, philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard published a book called The Divine Conspiracy. I would argue that this is the most influential book in the church in the West in the last 20 years. Everybody across denominational lines, movements, cultures has had to wrestle with this and either reject it or try to figure out what the heck he was talking about. If you've read the book, you know what I mean. <laughs> the Divine Conspiracy is a meditation on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's his summary of this sermon. He says, Jesus came among us to show and teach the life for which we were made. And that word teach is so important to the argument of this book. To, uh, this call for us to think about Jesus as teacher. He came gently, opened access to the governance of God, and set afoot a conspiracy of freedom in truth. I love that. A conspiracy of freedom in truth among human beings. So again, part of Willard's thesis is that if Jesus is who he said he was, God incarnate, fully God, fully man, the Son of God, this long-awaited Messiah and King, then he has the best information available on what it means to be human. 
Let me say that again. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then he has the best information available on what it means to be human. And this is important because a lot of, a lot of people, I think, reduce Jesus in different ways. Sometimes we think of him as just a get-out-of-hell free card. Or, or we think of Jesus as this like hippy-dippy guy who had some like cool things to say. But we don't consider him to be the ultimate authority on reality. And again, Willard argues that we need to take Jesus as teacher seriously. That his teachings on the kingdom are the foundation for the life of the disciple of Jesus. Now, I think one of the reasons we sometimes struggle with Jesus as teacher, Jesus as authority, is because what he has to say, especially in this sermon, is crazy. It's kind of crazy. This is, a, this is one of my son's airplanes, and this is a terrible illustration, but just bear with me for a moment, okay? I also, it, we had a huge controversy about me taking this from our home this morning, so there's, there's some cost associated with this illustration, all right? I, I mentioned this a few moments ago. A lot of times when we think about Jesus' teaching, we think of it as upside down, right? That, that there's this way that the world operates, and, and Jesus is sort of the flip of that. And it's really cool and exhilarating. Flying around upside down has got to be very exciting, right? But at some point, it's going to give you a headache because all the blood is rushing to your head. But we think of it as being upside down. And I think what Jesus is really doing, actually, is saying your entire life, you have already been flying around upside down. And it looks right. The gauges look level. They look like they're oriented in the right direction. But we've been oriented to the wrong horizon, and what Jesus does for us, particularly in this sermon, is actually say, no, you are flying around upside down. I am flipping it around the right way. Now you will be oriented to what is really actually true. And so instead of the upside down kingdom, maybe we need to think of it as the right side up kingdom. Jesus is reorienting us, flipping us right side up. Now that was a whole lot of background to Matthew chapter 5. So here we go. Okay, we've got a lot to get through. We're going to move through this fairly quickly. Jesus begins this section of the sermon saying this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Here again, this massive tension between fulfillment and something new. Jesus addresses it head on. He says, my goal here is not deconstruction. I haven't come here to burn this thing to the ground but to fulfill it, not to abolish, but to fulfill. However, he will go on in the next several verses to repeat this refrain over and over again. You have heard it said, but now I tell you. You have heard it said, but now I tell you. Jesus' whole life is this paradox between the old and the new, fulfilling ancient promises and demonstrating an entirely new way to live. And it's this new way to live that Jesus calls the way, the truth, and the life. Good news, the best possible way to live from the best authority on the subject. And that word authority is so critical here. This is a huge element of what Jesus is doing in this section of the sermon. Establishing his authority by radically reinterpreting the law, the Old Testament, the Torah. 
So we're going to walk through here very quickly six ways that Jesus reorients us, flips us right side up in the kingdom. He begins by addressing anger. Jesus says, we have laws that prohibit murder, but I'm telling you that anyone who hates his brother or sisters is subject to the same kind of judgment. From there he moves to sex. Jesus says the law prohibits adultery, but I'm telling you that lust is just as demeaning and damaging. From sex to marriage, Jesus says there's a procedure in our laws for seeking divorce, but actually divorce is a last resort reserved for extreme circumstances. From there to words. I think a fun debate is, is out of the six things here, what's the most pertinent to our, our moment in time right now? That's a good argument you guys can have in your groups this week. I, I wonder if it's words. Jesus says there may be loopholes that you can use to get out of stuff, to twist your words, to, to make yourself look better. But his invitation is to use our words simply and directly. If you say you will do it, do it. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. From words to justice. There are laws that justify seeking revenge as a form of justice, but Jesus invites us to repay evil with good, to make a mockery of evil through our generous and peaceful response. And then he lands this whole thing with reconciliation. Jesus says anybody can love their neighbor or, or those who are nice to them, but a mark of a kingdom life a mark of my disciple, Jesus' disciples, is to love your enemies, to love the other, to love those who have hurt us and done wrong to us. Upside down to right side up. Now, here's where it gets tricky. There's a tendency uh, among people, especially churchy people, to want to take this stuff and define it and spell out in great detail what this is supposed to look like. I want us to, to hold that thought for a moment. Look at how Jesus actually speaks through this section of the sermon. He talks about cutting off body parts. He, he talks about these over-the-top reactions to evil. Go the second mile. If someone punches you on this side of the face, let them punch you on the other side of the face. He says he's not here to abolish the law, but then he clearly contradicts the law in several points. And then he sums the whole thing up with this awesome statement. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to live a kingdom life? Just be perfect. No big deal. So again, what some of us do with this is we go to this place of legalistic parsing, trying to define exactly what lust is and where's the line there and when do I cross it and then like what does it look to go the second mile or whatever. We, just, we, we create these very detailed applications of what all of this means, forgetting that this is the very trap that the religious elite of Jesus' day fell into. Now, some of us go in the complete other direction of saying, this sounds great, but man, this is, this is impossible. This is naive. This is impractical. This does not work in the real world. Maybe we even think of it as oppressive. Be perfect? Don't put that on me. And so we reject Jesus' teaching. We reject his authority. We subject ourselves to some other authority, most often our own selves. 
Now, to those who want to parse and define, I think Jesus uses language the way he does, hyperbole, exaggeration, even some uh, sarcasm to unmask just how ridiculous that approach is. You are never going to be able to create a law or structure a definition uh, 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 or whatever of, of lust that completely gets rid of that problem. You might as well cut off your hand. And to those who would say that this is impossible, impractical, naive, I think Jesus would say something to the effect of you're on to something there. However, don't just reject it out of hand. Trust me. Try this with me. What Jesus is doing here is raising the bar to a ridiculous level to show just how futile it is to try to pull this off on our own. Scripture says all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And this is a repeated idea all throughout the Bible. No one can be perfect. And so we need help. (laughs) We need someone who can be perfect for us. We need a power that is not our own. We need a king. We need Jesus in order to live this way. And I think there is a lot of harm done in our world in trying to create a kingdom without the king. Are you with me? Jesus, again, not giving the details or the blueprint. He's casting a vision. A vision for a way of life that is not all about legalistic moralism or throwing up our hands in apathy. This is a vision for a way of life that doesn't just avoid killing people but values the inherent worthiness of all human beings. A vision for a way of life where we're not just avoiding adultery or porn but where we value women as the image of God and not just as objects. A vision for a way of life where we experience more peace and less anger, freedom from lawsuits and name-calling and demonizing people that we disagree with. A vision for a way to live in this world that honors marriage and vows and promises a life that values words and truth and speaks plainly and simply. A life that seeks peace and reconciliation with our enemies, with those who have hurt us, and who treat us poorly. This is the kind of life that Jesus invites us into. Now, a bit about perfect. I think, I think we get tripped up on that last verse there sometimes. The Old Testament vision of the good life was built around this idea of shalom. And we've talked a bit about this since I've been here, primarily in our Psalms series. So some of you, this should be familiar language to you. Remember that this term shalom rooted in the creation account. When God looks at all he creates, Genesis 1 and 2, and sees that it is very good, this is shalom, the way that God intended the world to function. And we've defined it this way. Shalom is a hierarchy of right relationships. And the order here, very important. God, humans, the rest of creation. Shalom is where we live in right relationship with God and with each other and with our worlds. This concept of shalom pervades the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not calling us to some platonic ideal of moral perfection where we make no mistakes. He's calling us to a life 
of shalom. Blessing, wholeness, peace, righteousness, justice, right relationship with God and with each other. I've told this story before, but it's worth repeating because I want this language to sink in for us. But I I worked for a a couple of summers many years ago now at Mount Hermon, that camp in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I was a staff counselor, which is this combination of RA and pastor to the 100-plus college students that staffed the camp during the summer. And, And so for 15 weeks, we lived in these ratty old dorms up on a hill all together, serving and getting to know each other. And as you might imagine, 120 college students crammed together in a small dorm for 15 weeks. Drama ensued, okay? Pranks, heartbreaks, roommate issues, team members who weren't pulling their weight, all that kind of good stuff. And I would meet regularly with my boss, who's a guy named Bob, and I'd, be, I'd tell Bob, Bob, there's all this stuff that's going on. You know, people who are making out in the bushes at midnight and just, I mean, all this craziness. What do I do? And Bob, who had been through many, many summers of camp, would just sit there and he'd smile at me and listen to my vents. And when I would say, what do I do? He'd say, Steve, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. And I was, I'd always be like, but Bob, I don't think you heard like all the, all the things that are going on. Like it's crazy over there in the dorms. Like what do I do? And Bob was just like very Obi-Wan Kenobi, just like, Steve, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. What he was doing is what I think Jesus does in this sermon. He's casting vision. He's not giving us, here's the three things that you have to do, or here's the bullet points that you have to follow. He's helping us see this is what it can look like. Jesus is inviting us to remember the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. Shalom only comes when we submit ourselves to the king and his kingdom, and then we live and do the hard work of settling matters, as Matthew talks about, of working through forgiveness and reconciliation. And the truth, the harsh truth, is we cannot do this on our own power. But the good news is that because of Jesus, because of the grace and forgiveness that we have through Jesus' death and resurrection, we do have the power to actually live in right relationship with God and with each other. Now, to close this this morning, I'm going to end our time together a little bit different than how we normally do this. Um, this is part confession and part challenge and part heart-to-heart chat with Pastor Steve. Okay? Um, I saw this this week on Twitter. This is from Beth Moore, who tweeted, It's not wrong to go to someone who has sinned against you and directly address the wrongdoing. What's wrong, and I'm wondering how many times I've been there, is growing a deeper and deeper root of resentment because we lack the courage to confront or the self-control to do it calmly. And I read that and I was like, Dang, Beth Moore, you stole my sermon. <laughs> but she's so right. And I think there's a lot of truth in what she says here. I've seen this in my own life and in so many conversations with other people. I think my generation and younger, we have swung in the direction of being able to name uh, 
institutional problems, structural sin, and toxic culture. And I want you to hear me very clearly on this. This is a good thing. Okay, there are uh, systemic sins and toxic cultures and institutional abuse that happens that needs to be named and called out. The Old Testament is full of uh, lengthy speeches of speaking truth to power. And the New Testament talks about the powers and principalities that are at work in our life. We need to be able to name and talk about those things. However, I have this concern, and I've seen it in my own life, and I see it in many conversations that I have with people. I think in swinging in that direction, we've lost the ability to actually sit down with someone, a real, actual person who has hurt us, and name that hurt and work through a process of forgiveness and reconciliation. Most of you know I worked as a, a campus minister for about six years in Boston for an organization called Sojourn Collegiate Ministry. And uh, when I joined the team, it was brand new. Um, we were like a, a campus ministry startup. Everything was from scratch. And so I contributed significantly to building that thing from the ground up. The, the vision, the culture, I helped start two different campus groups and rescue a third. And through all of that, I got really close with my boss and the director, founder of the organization, a guy named Tim. Tim kept giving me um, more and more responsibility over time, and there was this moment where our team expanded from Boston to Providence. And in that transition, I was asked to lead the Boston team, and that's a whole long story that we don't have time for this morning, so I'll spare you of that. But all that to say is it set off a chain of events that eventually led to us moving back to California and, and even ultimately here to Davis. A chain of events that at the time felt, felt um, really hurtful. And I took it really, really personally. And, and when Beth Moore talks about that, that, that deep resentment, that was where I was. And I would process this this thing that happened to me with people and I'd be venting about the organization and sojourn this and my frustration with all of it and, and finally there was someone who was wise enough to call me on that and say Steve I keep hearing you say a lot of things about the board and about sojourn but it sounds like you have a problem with Tim and that was a really hard thing for me to hear but ultimately it was a very freeing thing to be able to name what was really going on. The thing behind the thing there was a broken relationship with Tim. And I think what we do is we, we create these sort of anonymous entities that, that allow us to pour all of our frustration and anger and bitterness and resentments without actually having to deal with the thing that went on in the moment. We say our family, but we really mean dad. And we say the company that we work for, but we really mean our boss. And we say the church, but we really mean a person who has a name. And again, I think what we're doing there is we're hiding behind the anonymity of the group as a way to avoid the difficult and uncomfortable and, let's be honest, awkward moment of naming a hurt and asking for forgiveness, seeking forgiveness, and moving towards reconciliation. But life in the kingdom, the life that Jesus offers us, is a life free from that bitterness and that resentment. 
And again, for me, what was so freeing was being able to finally see, oh, this is a problem with Tim. And to begin working through that and moving towards reconciliation and letting that go, forgiving that hurt so that I can move on and be free to move into whatever the next thing is. Tim Keller, you can bring that quote up. says, everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death into resurrection and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. But you can forgive. Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. It keeps going. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Yes, but it is death that leads to resurrection instead of a lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. The good news, again, is that this is what God does for us. Absorbs the debt. Allows himself to be nailed to that cross in order to forgive us. In order to extend us that grace so that we can be in right relationship with him. And subsequently, so that we can then extend that grace to one another and forgive one another and be in right relationship with each other. The way we're going to close today is, is this. You should have gotten a three-by-five card when you came in this morning. And if you did it, there's some on the tables around the room. And so at some point this morning, if you get a chance to do this, I would challenge you to do this. Again, in that, that spirit of really being able to name the hurt, as we enter into a time of reflection and prayer and communion, to think about the, whatever relational bitterness and resentments you bring with you into this new year. And, and maybe you've done the thing that I did, the thing that I think a lot of us have done, and we've, we've turned it into a group of people or to that place or that organization or that city or whatever it is, as a way of avoiding naming the actual pain that we feel and the person who actually hurt us. And so the challenge is just to think that through, and if you need to name it, name it. And then what you can do is fold that up. There's um, baskets uh, on, the, uh, on the tables here for communion. When you come to take communion, just fold that thing up, drop it in there. No one is going to read these names. We're not doing anything with this. They'll probably just get dumped right after the gathering. So a little bit of a waste of paper, but a good cathartic exercise for us to begin this year. And, and what I also want to say is this, this exercise is hopefully helpful in, in leading you in this direction, but there's undoubtedly some hard work that needs to come after that. And so don't let this be a time where you just write a name down and drop it in the bucket before you go to take communion, but to really then take the step of uh, either talking to someone, sitting down with someone, or just being able to let that go and forgive that person so that you can be free as we begin a new year, free to be in right relationship with God and with each other. Let's pray. Father, we, we um, like the, the folks that we read about in Nehemiah, there's a, there's a cut to the heart when we encounter the truth of your words. There's the reality that, that we could never be perfect. We can never do this on our own. We need you. We need your help. 
And so we begin there in our response this morning, God, in just confessing our need for you, that we want to be submitted to you as king to experience life in your kingdom. The, the vision that you cast, it is not something that we can do by trying harder or by doing more good things or by working up courage or whatever it might be, God. We can only do it through your power, through the grace that you have extended us, extended to us through Jesus. So we begin there by confessing our need for you, by accepting the good gift of Jesus for us. And then, God, I pray for those here this morning who are harboring bitterness and resentment and in many cases it is real and it is extremely painful and that hurt may represent a, a significant abuse a significant thing that happened in our life we cannot just write that down on a card and move on from it we need again your grace we need your power we need your healing to begin moving on from some of those things so God, wherever people might be in that process, I pray that this morning would be one step closer towards the mark that you set for us, which is right relationship with each other. To forgive even our enemies, even those who have done wrong to us and hurt us. So would you transform our hearts, God? Would you help us to know in, in either a new or a fresh or even for the first time, again, the grace and strength that comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. Give us the courage to forgive who we need to forgive this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.